14, verse 32. Thank you. I'm reading from the ESV translation. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Praise God for his word. Amen. Thank you, Gareth. Okay, so here we are. We're in the Mark's Gospel, and here we've got Christ, Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's believed that this location is linked to the same place where earlier Christ in this chapter was sharing bread and wine with the disciples in the upper room. Um, and for context, and just as a reminder, this is also the same day that this happens. So they've met in the upper room, they've gone to the Mount of Olives, and they've returned to the Garden of Gethsemane. So, in this passage, we read what theologians refer to as Christ's last great temptation. It's the culmination of the devil's attempt to attack and keep Christ from the cross. Sometimes you may have heard a message preached about the devil that he might have been surprised or taken unaware when Christ actually died and became the savior of the world. I think this perhaps assumes a little bit too little of him. And while I love popular analogies in TV and film, um, one of my favorites is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And uh, we often have the surprised witch at the end when she's like, oh, Aslan, you've come back and saved everyone. I thought I killed you. It's actually not the same as Satan in the Bible. Simplifying Satan to this degree, we can risk making the antagonist a two-dimensional villain and a caricature of who he is. Uh, we're warned to be on guard. Since the, since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, um, we've got um, the devil and the forces of evil 
have spent a lot of time trying to understand what God's redemptive plan for man was. They've heard the prophecies. They're aware of the things that are coming. And it was clear that once Christ was born into the world, that there was to be found in him a resolution for the previous prophecies and the plans of God. Satan has made many attempts to stop Christ from achieving God's plan. First, by trying to physically end his life at his very birth. Later, he attacks Christ in the wilderness to tempt him to take a different path. Forsaking his purpose of one of earthly glory, that's what the devil's trying to do. But now here in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we are in this verse, Christ is harrowed once more by the devil. In Luke verse 22:53, it describes this time as the hour of the power of darkness. It's a culmination of, of Satan's efforts to keep Christ away from the cross. And this time of prayer in the garden is one where Christ's human nature is being attacked so severely by the powers of darkness that he must fight in prayer. He must seek God the Father and hide from the human desire to flee. Christ's flight from his purpose was Satan's ultimate aim. Without Christ obeying the will of the Father and choosing to lay down his life, the judgment to hell would prevail. So severe was Christ's anguish that it almost kills him. Mark's Gospel talks of Christ falling to the ground and crying to God for help. Luke verse 22:44 says that the stress was so great that he began to sweat drops of blood. And in Mark verse 34 says, my soul is so sorrowful even to death. Make no doubt about it, this was a seriously traumatic event taking place. The anticipation of the cross and the sacrifice for sin and the wrath of God's judgment weighed heavily upon Christ. I can only imagine how we might feel facing the same judgment for our own sinful lives at the end of days. Certainly, our own toughness and bravado would evaporate faster than the spark from a match. To stand before the creator of all things in his complete holiness and perfection, and with us having nothing more than a feeble excuses and our worthless good works. We face the full judgment and wrath of God. Only Christ, who was fully aware of this, could still stand there and pray. Indeed, in Luke's gospel, in chapter 22, 43, it states that an angel of the Lord appeared to Christ and was, was there to strengthen him. So great was his anguish. The Father is not without mercy, nor is he some sort of distant authority figure. He was once with Christ. Sorry, he was one with Christ. And knowing the anguish, anguish afflicting his son, he sent an angel to, to strengthen and give him resolve. We should take heart from this experience. Just as Christ, God does not hear our prayers and respond with indifference. He is not an unemotional, uninvolved entity. God remains with us in the midst of our anguish. He hears the cries of our hearts and strengthens us. 
He doesn't change his plans to make things easier for Christ in this verse. He also doesn't remove our sources of affliction. He helps us to endure just as he helps Jesus. If you're suffering through a time of pain or feel, as Jesus did, trepidation for the things to come, know that God is there with you. He knows about it, and he holds you in his hands, sending strength that we may endure, persevere, and glorify him through it. All four Gospels account for this event. It's a supernatural struggle that's being described. The second greatest agony in Christ will experience, with the greatest being the crucifixion itself. The experience of sorrow and grief was so great that it came close to killing him. An anticipation before drinking the, de- the cup of death on that cross. This was a conflict so staggering for him, one which he had never experienced before. Previous encounters with the devil were not so intense. Even the 40 days in the wilderness under persistent attack didn't come close. The Bible makes stark prophecy of Christ's suffering in Isaiah 53, verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as one whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and his wounds were healed. We are like sheep gone astray and turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So, fully aware, Christ experienced this anticipation and distress experiencing the Father's will and to become the sacrifice for sin. He has become a sin-bearer, an alien concept to God himself, for he never experienced sin and had never died. As God, he could not be tempted to sin, though as man he is temptable, but yet was able not to sin. It's important to realize that his struggle is not the same as ours. We are tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He had none of those. He had no temptations in his nature that he would be drawn to sin as we are. His temptation is therefore not to be drawn to sin, but it was an attack on his holiness. Satan is attacking his holiness here. We struggle because the power of evil is so strong in us. We are drawn to sin because the power of evil is so strong in our fallen nature. We are hit with a double punch. We struggle against the internal impulses of the flesh, the external influences of a fallen world, and ultimately we struggle to do what is right, to be righteous. But not so with Christ for he was completely filled with holiness and righteousness. There was no motivation within him to do anything apart from those things. 
Yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, he has been called to embrace sin, not as a sinner, but as a sin bearer, to receive the divine punishment for sin. We struggle because sin is so strong in us, yet he struggled because the power of holiness was the only impulse existing in him. Holiness is something we struggle to comprehend. I'm sure I don't fully comprehend it in its fullness. God is called a holy God. Holy, 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 the angels cry around his heavenly throne. This is a distinct marker of who God is. It is an aspect of our Christian walk that we are guilty of overlooking often. And we should be reminded that God calls us to holiness. In Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it says, um, Therefore, preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The devil attacks our holiness as he also applies pressure on Christ's here. I am as guilty as the next man for failing to live a holy life. And while we all sin, we are all given the offer of forgiveness in Jesus. In the same way, following that forgiveness, we are called to repent and to change our ways and aim for holiness. In imitating Christ, we should seek for that holiness. Story time. So, when I was a teenager, I went on a youth trip to a place called Carrickareed Rope Bridge. It's a place in Northern Ireland, and it's a very narrow bridge um, on a rope. Maggie probably knows about it. Uh, and it's, um, it's basically a rope that spans a gap across some water. There's a, a rocky outcrop, and there's the headland. And the rope goes across. It's very high up. It's often very windy. The rope moves about, and uh, you can hear the sound of the North Sea crashing on the rocks below. And it's enough to put most, well, a lot of people off starting and finishing that walk across. Well, as a youth group, we went, and uh, we took the decision to cross. Most of us did it fairly quickly. We got to the other side, um, but a few of us, we realized, were still on the other side. Um, trying to decide to cross. Now, one, one of our friends, he'd made about his way about a quarter of the way across, and then we realized something was wrong. Um, he was frozen. He would not move. Um, and you often say, here it said, don't look down. Well, it's a very good idea in this situation. Um, he was frozen in fear, concentrated on those rocks below and the sea crashing around. <sighs> Eventually, um, one of our youth leaders came alongside him and told him, stop looking down, look at the end of the bridge, look at that goal over there. And sure enough, things changed, and he made it across that bridge. And to this day, I know that he's proud of making that journey. What I'm trying to say is that simply trying not to sin focuses our minds on the sin. We're reminded of it, and it retakes ground in our minds. Christ is calling us to focus on the goal of holiness, 
allowing it to feed into our thinking and helping us to resist the temptations of sin. So if we keep our eyes on that holiness, we're not looking at the sin keeping us down. God's punishment for sin is an eternal one. For each sinner is due to receive an external, an eternal punishment for sin. Yet Christ, who was holy, harmless, and undefiled, took upon himself the eternal punishment at the cross. So Christ, having this revealed to him, is engulfed in grief and sorrow in the garden to the point of death. We shouldn't lose sight uh, in this time of suffering and struggle that Christ was not simply left to his human strength. He wasn't expected to suck it up, to choose not to be worried, to simply refocus his mind. He met the struggle head on and brought it before God the Father and was strengthened through it. Importantly, we don't read anywhere in the the Bible that the anticipation of the cross or the struggle with his coming judgment simply disappeared for him. Often this can be in our own experiences and struggles. God hasn't provided a get-out-of-struggle card for us. There is no secret solution or declaration to wipe away our worries and fears. Surely, if it was, Christ would just have taken that option. Would he not have left instructions for us to do the same? If we ignore our worries, focus on distraction, or simply pretend that they no longer exist, they often return to bite us, and often in unexpected ways. Christ was fully aware of his path. He knew where it led. He did experience agony and pain in the struggle, though he chose to look to God for help and reassurance. Ultimately, God did strengthen him to endure the coming agonies. And we should take heed of this example. In God, we find refuge from the storms of life. He will strengthen us to stand in our struggles, but he doesn't promise to remove them all. Being one with God, Christ knew this, and he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. God is supreme, and just like God himself, he is pure, holy, and full of goodness for us. If we stop for a moment, we can also learn some significant points from this prayer that Christ made. Firstly, Christ addresses God as Abba, a term used in an affectionate and intimate term for for fathers in the Middle East, one that a child would call his, his earthly father. Christ is signifying that he has a very intimate relationship with God, a concept foreign to Jews who would not consider themselves capable of ever coming before God in such a manner. The intimate term Abba is mentioned purposefully by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, when he calls on us as adopted sons and daughters to cry, Abba, Father, in contrast to the relationship of slave and master. Galatians 4, verse 6 continues and says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
a son and heir address their father, Abba. And we are told to do the same. Similarly, we should follow Christ's example in this prayer. For Christ asks the Father to remove the cup from him, saying, Yet not I will, but what you will. Christ bows to the will of the Father. Church, don't be led astray. The intimacy Christ had with the Father did not grant special powers, blessings, or spiritual authority to change the will of God. Nor can we abuse this intimacy that we've been given to deviate from God's will, plans, and purposes. He is holy. His will is sovereign. How can we, in our fallen state, have plans and desires that can compete with God's will? It is foolishness to make such declaration or decrees. God's plans far suppress our own selfish short-sightedness. Tellingly, Christ confirms that all things are possible for God and requests the cup to be taken from him if it is within the Father's will. Spoiler alert, as we know, this was not possible. Christ was clearly so consumed with the coming judgment and crucifixion that he seeks the Father for any possible alternative. And the fact that there was none testifies to us that Christ's sacrifice was the only possible way for us to be redeemed. Hear me on this. When Christ was given no alternative from the Father but the crucifixion, it justifies the statement that he makes in John 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There are many persuasive speakers and ideas floating around in the world today, but none is more insidious than the idea that we might be saved through another means. Had there been another option than the sacrifice and punishment of Christ, would the Father not have done it instead? Access to the Father is only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. He made the way back to the Father possible. Christ died and suffered so that we may not. Don't be deceived. All other roads are literally dead ends. Without his death, without his sacrifice, we have to face the final day of judgment, the punishment and wrath of God for our sins alone and without any hope of that salvation. Through, though Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin and the ultimate eternal penalty is no longer ours. We are heirs in the kingdom of God through Christ alone. Only through Jesus can we have intimate access to the Father. We no longer must hide our faces and prostrate ourselves before the altar and offer blood sacrifices before we can speak to God as the Jews did. Our joy is that we have instant and immediate access to God through simple repentance and prayer in Jesus Christ. So, returning to the passage, we read that Christ took to the garden with him Peter, James, and John. So, these were his three closest disciples, and yet the text refers to them throughout. These are the three disciples closest to him, yet evidently failed on three occasions to keep watch and follow his commands. Well, church, I think there's so much for us to take away here. Surely Christ knew that they would fail. 
just as he knew the rooster would crow twice before Peter would deny him those three times. What is being taught here? I believe that we're seeing Christ use these three, three disciples as an example for us. When confronted with sin and the easy options in life, we're tempted to slink out and take the easy route. As Christ says, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter says in only a few verses earlier that even though they all fall away, I will not. Yet here we see him with James and John failing at this simple task of keeping watch. Of course, Christ is completely correct. The words of Peter were bold and full of conviction, but they wouldn't even last a few hours. Brothers and sisters, this is us. This is to us an example of how we are. We too are guilty of speaking such strong words of conviction, boasting in our own loyalty, our fierce devotion and unwavering faith. Yet all too soon, these words return to us dead as we inevitably fail to meet the standards which are so lofty and unattainable on our own. Just as Christ here does not berate or condemn them, so too does he, he take the same approach with us. We are truly blessed to receive his grace. Without it, all our words, our boasts and convictions would be held against us. We all fail and we all fall and we contribute to that weight of sin which Christ is going to take as that burden for us in this scripture. As we read of his anticipation in the garden, before he takes on that awful judgment, I recommend that we take a moment to realize that there's nothing that we can do to reduce our contribution to his suffering. As a child I, growing up, I took great offense to the idea that Adam was to blame for all the sin in the world and that I was just as bad as him because I have also sinned. And as a proud young man, I made a decision that all I would need to do is just simply stop sinning. I prayed that night and made a conviction that I would stop and I would be a sinner no more. How deluded we are in our own pride. Of course, there is no way to flick a switch and no longer be tempted by sin. Our flesh is working against us all the time, working to undermine our good plans and our words. Well, it's safe to assume that I failed miserably, um, but it doesn't mean that I'm forsaken by God. Christ knows that we fail and gives us the great gift of unmerited grace. We must be careful, however, that we are not see this as a blank check and that we can sin all we like. We are called to repent and to change our ways and to seek holiness and pray to withstand those sins in future. We are in a constant state of being refined, though not, they will not experience that, that complete re refinement until we return in glory when we go to heaven. As Christians, we're called to imitate Christ, to pray for strength in the face of temptation, and to seek for ways to avoid sinning, and to be part of a family of believers that will help to guide and disciple us. Lastly, as we go home today, we should be assured that Christ did not choose to follow the we should be assured that Christ did not choose not to follow the will of the Father. He did give himself up to death. 
it is because of that sacrifice that we can come to him and receive forgiveness for sins. We have access to the Father just as Christ did if we only repent and seek forgiveness. Christ knows our weaknesses and failures, his sufferings, and he received, well, he suffered and received strengthening from God. He sought help in the middle of his affliction and grief. As Christians, we should be imitators of Christ and do as he did. We should, we should come to Jesus when we are broken, downcast, and ashamed, returning to him not in our pride, but in surrender, knowing that only he can save us. Uh, well, I'm just going to close with a prayer. Um, so, Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your, your sacrifice and your death. We thank you for the things you went through in that garden of Gethsemane. Lord God, we here are all guilty of falling short of the holiness you modeled. We have made errors and fallen back into sin. Jesus, we remember your sacrifice, and we thank you for your death on the cross that we might have a route to forgiveness. Jesus, help us fix our eyes on you to aim once more for holiness. And we pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us in the midst of our struggles. We praise you, God, for all that you do and have done for us. Amen.